The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Oh my. Oh The things that happens when you do a live radio, isn't it? Well, it's one o'clock Eastern Standard Time. We are in America's ra- uh, web radio uh, from Atlanta, the home of the Braves, world champions. So, sorry, my friend. Because uh, we, we, uh, yeah, yeah, nobody's in it, and uh, we are in uh, Let's Talk Venezuela. Uh, we have uh, here with David and Brad, and uh, we have a lot of different news. Uh, today that uh, has to do with what happens in Venezuela. Uh, let's go to the first note. Happen to America's Web Radio on the America's Broadcast Network.com. Thank you for listening. This news at Let's Talk Venezuelan comes to you courtesy of the Red Alternativa Capitalista de Información, the Alternative Capitalist Information Network. Look for us as a group on Facebook. And to the generous donations of listeners of this station, www.americaswebradio.com. Yes, please donate. Be patron of this program and all the programs of this web radio station. Let's go to number two, please. Maduro's ally Alex Saab arraignment in U.S. court on money laundering charges postponed. Alex Saab, the close ally of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, will now be arraigned on charges of money laundering in federal court in Miami on November 15, in a case that has further strained already frayed relations between Washington and Caracas. Prosecutors say Alex Saab, a Colombia-born businessman and top dealmaker for Maduro's socialist government, siphoned around $350 million out of Venezuela via the United States as part of a bribery scheme linked to Venezuela's state-controlled exchange rate. One of Saab's lawyers, Henry Bell, told Reuters last week, that his client would plead not guilty at an arraignment that had been originally scheduled for Monday. 
On Monday, Bell had asked U.S. Magistrate Edwin Torres for the arraignment to be postponed by two weeks. Because we have been unable to personally see Mr. Saab at FTC, Federal Detention Center, because he's in quarantine, we're respectfully requesting a continuance of the arraignment, Bell said. We do expect to see Mr. Saab this week, because we believe he'll be released from quarantine. Venezuela's opposition has said it hopes Saab will tell U.S. law enforcement agencies what he knows about any criminal activity by top Venezuelan officials, as well as the government's schemes for evading U.S. sanctions, which were aimed at ousting Maduro. Washington has called Maduro a corrupt dictator and blamed him for the once wealthy OPEC nation's economic collapse. Saab was extradited in October from Cape Verde, where he was arrested in 2020 when his plane stopped to refuel. Following the arrest, Venezuela's government said Saab had been granted Venezuelan citizenship and named a diplomat to negotiate shipments of fuel and humanitarian aid from Iran. In response to the extradition, Maduro's government last month suspended nascent negotiations with the opposition. Maduro's allies have characterized Washington's pursuit of Saab as part of an economic war on Venezuela being waged by the U.S. government. The U.S.-backed opposition, which has called on Maduro to resume the talks, has said Saab became wealthy as a result of the deals he made with the government and did nothing to relieve the suffering of Venezuela's citizens. In a January 21 court filing, Saab's attorneys called the corruption charges a cryptically alleged scheme and said he denied the allegations. Mr. Saab denies this scheme and all allegations of the indictment concerning it or any conspiracy, bribery, or money laundering of any kind, his attorneys wrote. U.S. prosecutors in 2019 charged Saab in connection with a bribery scheme linked to Venezuela's state-controlled exchange rate. They have accused Saab and an ally of siphoning around $350 million out of Venezuela and into overseas accounts via the United States. Washington has also imposed sanctions on Saab over accusations he orchestrated a scheme that enabled him and Maduro to profit from a state-run food distribution program. Saab's lawyers have called the U.S. charges politically motivated. Saab, a 49-year-old Colombian national, was arrested in June 2020 when his plane stopped to refuel in Cape Verde. The country's courts approved his extradition following a lengthy legal battle. Saab appeared during an initial hearing in an orange jumpsuit and blue face mask via video conference before U.S. Magistrate Judge John O'Sullivan in Miami. During this week some of the charges were dropped following the agreement of Cape Verde and U.S. government that regulates the extradition. Saab's lawyer, Henry Bell, 
asked for the arraignment to be scheduled in two weeks, citing the need to brief his client as well as a pending appeal that says Saab was wrongfully arrested as he had diplomatic immunity. Over the weekend in Caracas, Saab's wife Camilla told a small government-led protest that her husband would fight the charges against him. My husband Alex Saab will never break down, never, she said through tears, in a video posted online. Following Saab's extradition, Venezuela suspended talks with the opposition, citing its deepest protest against the treatment of Saab. In a televised speech on Monday, Maduro said he was outraged by Saab's extradition and that he would evaluate what to do with the talks later. Venezuela also revoked the house arrest of six former executives of refiner Citgo, a U.S. subsidiary of state oil company PDVSA, two sources, and a family member told Reuters. The former executives were brought to one of the headquarters of the intelligence police, two sources said. The U.S. government has repeatedly demanded the release of the group, which is made up of five naturalized U.S. citizens and one permanent resident. Tensions have increased between Washington and Caracas, long ideological foes, after former President Donald Trump in 2019 created a broad sanctions program meant to force Maduro from power amid an economic freefall. Venezuela's government has accused the United States of kidnapping Saab, whom they describe as a diplomatic envoy who was en route to Iran to negotiate supplies of fuel and food that have been interrupted by U.S. sanctions. The opposition says Saab was one of the chief beneficiaries of the country's state controls and are hoping he will cooperate with U.S. authorities. Many doubted that this day would come because those who have looted Venezuela portray themselves as untouchable, tweeted Carlos Vecchio, the envoy to the United States of Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido. But the day always comes. A 2016 Reuters investigation found that Saab was also the head of a tiny Colombian trucking company that unexpectedly beat global industry leaders to land a multi-billion dollar project in Venezuela's Orinoco Belt, the world's largest crude reserve. The deal was ultimately shelved after outcry from foreign oil companies. Okay, now you see, um, Mr. Saab is in a federal retention center in Miami uh, after a long battle against the extradition. In the first day on, on court, uh, they denied him the, uh, bail because he represents a high risk of flee. In the second day on court, they drop a lot of the charges, especially on the 
money laundering because Cape Verde has a maximum penalty of 20 years in that charge. So the U.S. must comply with that uh, request of the Cape Verde authorities in order to uh, receive the this guy from Cape Verde. The third day of court is the one that is suspended because um, that implies exactly what will be the charges that the U.S. will uh, prosecute against Mr. Saab. The, uh, Mr. Saab has a high probability to, to get the 20 years in jail. But because he was detained for almost two years, the, the thing would be uh, about 18 years. Um, I just talked to some lawyers and they told me that this case will be the decide in less than four months. By the other hand, El Pollo Carvajal, uh, that is another case that is uh, ventilated in Madrid, was denied on the... Um, uh, by the authorities of Spain to have a recognition as a political prosecute. So the extradition to the United States has right now about a 60 to 70 percent probability to be uh, done. Well, uh, it's almost uh, the 15 minutes, and we'll be back after this message. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and, 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 and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, and the program has another surprise because the web of the corruption of Venezuela has a lot of tentacles. And uh, let's hear what uh, this note means. 
The Peruvian justice requested that the Peruvian ambassador to the Venezuelan regime not leave Peru due to an investigation on money laundering. The district attorney maintains that Rojas Garcia was in charge of withdrawing the money to deliver it to the investigative leader of the Peru Libra formation, Vladimir Sarin. The Peruvian prosecutor's office yeah. has asked the judiciary to prohibit the Peruvian ambassador to Venezuela, Richard Rojas Garcia, from leaving the country in connection with the investigation into the alleged money laundering. By this way, the Office for Money Laundering has requested that Rojas Garcia, recently appointed ambassador in Caracas, does not travel to Venezuela, thus potentially affecting the ongoing investigation of the organization called Los Dinamicos del Centro, collects the local newspaper La Republica. Therefore, the DA's office maintains that Rojas Garcia was in charge of withdrawing the money to deliver it to the leader of the formation, Vladimir Sarin. Specifically, last July, the new ambassador in Venezuela would have tried to withdraw more than 376,000 sols more than USD 85,000 in the name of Sarin, blocking the accounts in charge of the Financial Intelligence Unit Peru prevented it, according to a report from El Comercio. The investigated Richard Rojas Garcia would have participated and carried out acts of conversion of maculated money, of illicit origin, not only for his benefit, but also for his political party Peru Libra, said the prosecutor Rojas Gomez. Last week, the governments of Peru and Venezuela resolved to resume their diplomatic relations at the highest level by having appointed and accepted their new ambassadors in Caracas and Lima. The Foreign Ministry of Peru announced that Venezuela granted the approval of style to Richard Freddy Rojas Garcia as the new Peruvian ambassador in Caracas. In turn, Peru extended the corresponding approval to the appointment of Alexander Gabriel Yanez de Luz as the new Venezuelan ambassador in Lima. With these designations, both countries put an end to more than four years without ambassadors, since Peru withdrew its representative in Caracas in March 2017 and expelled the Venezuelan in August of that year, during the government of Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, 2016-2018. The Kaczynski regime only maintained relations at the consular level. It promoted the actions of the Lima Group while supporting the entry of Venezuelan migrants to their country, which currently hosts more than 1.2 million of them. Well, now you can see what that this is a very complex situation because the actual government, uh, the actual administration of Peru uh, had named as a ambassador in Venezuela a guy who received $85,000 uh, from... Uh, um, 
some kind of political contributions without declaring it and that's one of the, um, the kind of uh, uh, money laundering uh, as the Peruvian law state and uh, you know uh, that happens because the actual government in uh, Peru is very um, is from the left and you know that nothing from the left is right so so that's that's one of the things that happens uh, right now in Peru um, because uh, we have a um, lot of um, problems um, uh, since the Grupo of Puebla wanted to have again the power in the whole Latin American uh, countries. Uh, the fourth note uh, we can uh, go ahead with the fourth note has a lot to do the, fi the fifth note has a lot to do with uh, what's going on in Venezuela. A Reuters special report by Brian Ellsworth and Mayila Armas in Caracas. The Maduro Mystery Why the Armed Forces Still Stand by Venezuela's Beleaguered President. Despite unprecedented poverty, crime, and mass migration, the armed forces remain loyal to President Nicolas Maduro. Reuters explains how a military overhaul blurred commands, politicized the ranks and drafted troops into partisan activities. One of the central mysteries of Venezuela's slow-motion collapse, why does the military continue to support Nicolas Maduro, the president who has led the once prosperous South American country into poverty and chaos? The answer according to people familiar with Venezuela's military structure, starts with Maduro's late predecessor, Hugo Chavez, the charismatic Cadillo, who cemented strongman socialist rule in the nation of about 30 million people. In a series of actions that began in 1999, the former lieutenant colonel and one-time coup leader began taming the military by bloating it, buying it off, politicizing it, intimidating the rank and file, and fragmenting the overall command. Once he took office in 2013, Maduro handed key segments of the country's increasingly ravaged economy to the armed forces. Select military officers took control of the distribution of food and key raw materials. A National Guard general and military deputies now manage the all-important national oil company, Petróleos de Venezuela S.A., or PDVSA. The two leaders also embedded intelligence agents, with the help of Cuba's security services, within barracks, former officers say, instilling paranoia and defusing most dissent before it happens. 
Intelligence agents have arrested and jailed scores of perceived troublemakers, including several high-profile officers, even for minor infractions. The overhaul, former military officials say, created a jumbled and partisan chain of command. Top officers, grateful for perks and fearful of retribution, are often more preoccupied with pleasing socialist party chiefs than with national defense. Instead of drills and war games, some generals find themselves fielding calls to plant vegetables or clear garbage. Many lower-ranking soldiers, destitute and desperate like most of Venezuela's working class, have deserted the military in recent years, joining at least four million other fellow emigres seeking a better life elsewhere. But few senior officers have heeded the opposition's call for rebellion, leaving the armed forces top-heavy, unwieldy, and still standing by Maduro. The chain of command has been lost, said Cliver Alcala, a former general who retired in 2013 and now supports the opposition from Colombia. There is no way to know who is in charge of operations, who is in charge of administration, and who is in charge of policy. Too many chiefs, a proliferation of flag officers means even top officials, like Defense Minister Vladimir Padrino, speaking, and Admiral Remigio Sabalos, right, have limited ability to command. Reuters slash handout slash Venezuelan presidency. Some commanders, like Defense Minister Vladimir Padrino, a four-star general, are nearly as much a face of the administration as Maduro. Padrino is sanctioned by the United States for ensuring Maduro's hold on the military and the government while the Venezuelan people suffer, according to the U.S. Treasury Department. Reuters was unable to reach Padrino or other senior officers mentioned in this article. Venezuela's defense ministry didn't reply to email or telephone inquiries. The country's information ministry, responsible for government communications including those of the president, didn't reply to Reuters either. Padrino is hardly alone. Consider the sheer number of officers awarded flag rank in Venezuela. The country's roughly 150,000 Army, Navy, Air Force and National Guard troops are a fraction of the more than 1 million who make up the U.S. Armed Forces. Yet Venezuela, with as many as 2,000 admirals and generals, now boasts as much as twice the top brass as the U.S. military, more than 10 times as many flag officers as existed when Chavez became president. The estimate is according to calculations by former Venezuelan officers and the U.S. military. Juan Guaido has said the fragmented military structure keeps him from speaking directly with troops and gaining their support to oust Maduro. The result, government opponents say, is a bureaucratic and operational mess, even at the very top. Padrino, for instance, is both a general and defense minister. 
but he can't officially mobilize troops without the consent of Remigio Sabalos, an admiral who also reports directly to Maduro and heads the Strategic Operations Command, an agency created by Chavez to oversee deployments. You have a general-in-chief and an admiral-in-chief, said Hebert Garcia, a retired general who once served under Maduro but now supports the opposition from Washington. Which one are you supposed to obey? The armed forces could still turn on Maduro, particularly if popular outrage boils over and makes military support for the president untenable. Still, calls by opposition leader Juan Guaido, who in late April unsuccessfully sought to rally the troops against Maduro, thus far remain unheeded. Guaido in May told reporters his efforts to convert troops are thwarted by the military's fragmented structure and intimidation within its ranks. What is preventing the break, he asked. The ability to speak openly, directly with each of the sectors. It has to do with the persecution inside the Socialist Party, inside the armed forces. To better understand the pressures and policies keeping the troops in Maduro's camp, Reuters interviewed dozens of current and former officers, soldiers, military scholars and people familiar with Venezuelan security. In their assessment, the military has evolved into a torpid bureaucracy with few leaders capable of engineering the type of mass mutiny that Maduro's opponents long for. Real Power Venezuela's Bolivarian Revolution, as Chavez dubbed his remaking of the country, itself has roots in military rebellion. Six years before he was elected president in 1998, Chávez led a failed coup against Carlos Andrés Pérez, a deeply unpopular president who Congress eventually forced from office. Once in power, Chávez immediately took steps to enlist the military in his vision for a paternalistic, state-led economy that would share abundant oil wealth with long-neglected segments of Venezuela's population. With a new constitution in December 1999, Chávez stripped Congress of its oversight of promotion of senior officers. That gave the president ultimate authority to assign flag ranks and empower allied officers. Because many state and local governments at the time were still controlled by rivals, Chávez also saw the military as a tool that could show his administration hard at work. A new program, Plan Bolivar 2000, ordered troops to fill potholes, clean highways, refurbish schools and carry out other public works. Dysfunction by design, step by step, Venezuela's government created a top-heavy, confusing chain of command. The $114 million effort put sizable sums at the discretion of commanders, giving officers a taste for a new kind of influence. What Plan Bolivar 2000 taught officers was that real power doesn't lie in commanding troops, but rather in controlling money, said one retired general. The general, 
who served under Chavez and Maduro, spoke on condition of anonymity. Soon, some of the funds began to disappear. Miguel Morph, a retired major, once worked as a captain in the remote northwestern region of La Guajira. He recalls receiving a request from superiors to provide materials for an unspecified schoolhouse. When Morph told a lieutenant colonel that he didn't understand where the supplies would be going, the superior told him, I need those materials for something else. The school didn't exist, Morph concluded. Military officials didn't reply to questions about the alleged incident. By 2001, a raft of corruption allegations plagued the Plan Boulevard program. Chavez fired General Victor Cruz, the Army's commander in charge of the program. Cruz denied wrongdoing and wasn't charged with any crime at the time. Venezuelan authorities arrested him when press reports linked him to funds in an offshore account. A Caracas court ordered him to stand trial on charges of illicit enrichment. Reuters couldn't reach Cruz for comment or identify his legal counsel. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, we're back. As you can hear, the complexity to to have uh, any kind of military coup in Venezuela is almost gone because there are not enough um, power inside of the armed force to organize any kind of uh, military coup. Uh, as you can hear, Venezuela has the double of top-ranked military, you know, generals and admirals than the United States. So, so it it implies that you have one general for two thousand troops. It's something ridiculous, you know, because how many people is a is a division? like uh, 60,000 or something like that. In a division? A division, yes. No, it's not that. I mean, it shouldn't be that much. Uh, you got a brigade and then a division. Uh-huh. Uh, brigade's about 
3,000, 4,000. Uh-huh. And uh, the division is probably, what did you say? How many people yeah, in but the but I mean, range? what did you say? Well, Venezuela has uh, one uh, brigadier general for uh, 2,000 troops. Yeah, that's that's about a brigade level. Uh, uh-huh. A little bit low for a brigade level, but uh, a division would be, I'm not sure, but about 10,000, I think. Yeah, well, as as you can see in Venezuela, we have they're top heavy. General, general, we have ten general in chief. You know, it's like a, a five star general. That's that's incredible. You know, so the problem right now in Venezuela is that the armed force are completely uh, disassembled as uh, an operative um, body. So, uh, if you see that in we had uh, that uh, report of the the club of the 35s, the 35 generals that moved the economy in Venezuela, plus that you have the the uh, this kind of corruption web in the high-ranking officers that is basically steal the money that they are uh, assigned for different things, and they just pocket in in uh, their pockets. You know, uh, it's almost impossible that an internal coup could have. Uh, happen in uh, inside of the armed force. In the second part of this reporting, you will see, see why. In 2002, Chavez said he would wind down Plan Boulevard 2000. Regional elections, he told Chilean sociologist and political activist Marta Harnecker in an interview, had put more allies in mayoral and state offices where they could now work in unison with the national government. The military, he said, would return to its normal business. That April, however, a small group of top officers emboldened Chavez to further remake the armed forces. Encouraged by conservative leaders and wealthy elites unhappy with his leftist agenda, the officers staged a coup and briefly arrested Chavez. But the coup unraveled. Within two days, Chavez was back in power. He purged the top ranks. More importantly, he reigned in several powerful offices, including the defense ministry. Henceforth, the ministry would manage military budgets and weapons procurement, but no longer control troops themselves. Chavez created the Strategic Operations Command, the agency that manages deployments. The move, former officers say, jumbled the chain of command. He also rethought overall strategy. Increasingly concerned that Venezuela's oil wealth and leftist policies would make it a target for invasion, particularly by the United States, 
Chavez pushed for the military to integrate further with the government and society itself. We're transforming the armed forces for a war of resistance, for the anti-imperialist popular war, for the integral defense of the nation, he said at a 2004 National Guard ceremony. Military leaders soon had to pledge their allegiance to Chavez and his Bolivarian project, not just the nation itself. Despite resistance from some commanders, the ruling party slogan, Fatherland, Socialism or Death, began echoing through barracks and across parade grounds. As of 2005, another factor helped Chavez tighten his hold on power. Oil prices, years before fracking would boost global supply, soared along with the notion the planet's reserves were dwindling. For most of the rest of his time in power, the windfall would enable Chavez to accelerate spending and ensure popular support. Oil money also helped him strengthen relationships with like-minded countries, especially those seeking to counterbalance the United States. Venezuela purchased billions of dollars in arms and equipment from Russia and China. It secured medical and educational support through doctors, teachers and other advisors arriving from Cuba, the closest ally of all. Cubans came with military know-how too. A cooperation agreement forged between Chávez and Fidel Castro years earlier had by now blossomed into an alliance on security matters, according to two former officers. Around 2008, Venezuelan officers say they began noticing Cuban officials working within various parts of the armed forces. General Antonio Rivero who the previous five years had managed Venezuela's civil protection authority, says he returned to military activities that year to find Cuban advisors leading training of soldiers and suggesting operational and administrative changes. The Cubans, he told Reuters, advised Chavez to rework the ranks, once built around strategic centers, into more of a territorial system spreading the military's presence further around the country. Rivero was stunned at one training session on military engineering. A Cuban colonel leading the session told attendees the meeting and its contents should be considered a state secret. What's happening here? Rivero said he asked himself, How is a foreign military force going to possess a state secret? Rivero left Venezuela for the United States in 2014. Cuban officials didn't respond to requests from Reuters for comment. Antonio Rivero, a retired general now living in the United States, was shocked in 2008 when he suddenly began encountering Cuban officials in military meetings and training. The island's influence soon would become apparent in day-to-day -day operations. In Cuba, the military is involved in everything from public works to telecommunications to tourism. In Venezuela, too, 
ruling party officials increasingly began ordering officers to take part in activities that had little to do with military preparedness. Soldiers increasingly became cheap labor for governors and mayors. In 2010, a general then serving in the Andes, a western region on the Colombian border, was overseeing a complex mobilization of 5,000 troops for a month of combat training. The general spoke on condition that he not be named. Another general, from a nearby command, called and asked him to halt the exercises. The state governor, the other officer told the general, wanted to reroute the troops to install energy-efficient light bulbs in homes. When the general refused, Army Commander Euclides Campos issued a formal order to scrap the training. This would sound shocking to any military professional, but it's exactly how the Venezuelan armed forces work, the former general said. Reuters was unable to reach Campos for comment. Traitors never. Chavez, stricken by cancer, died in 2013. Maduro, his vice president and hand-picked replacement as the Socialist Party candidate for president, won the election to succeed him. The new president continued naming new flag officers and appointed even more military officials to helm agencies. By 2017, Active and former military figures had held as many as half of Maduro's 32 cabinet posts, according to Citizen Control, a Venezuelan non-profit that studies the armed forces. Bolivarian brigades, the late Hugo Chavez, front row in red cap, a former lieutenant colonel and coup leader who was elected president in 1998, began remaking the military almost as soon as he took office. Reuters slash handout slash Venezuelan presidency. In 2014, just as a collapse in oil prices torpedoed Venezuela's economy, Maduro further fragmented the military structure. Following the advice of the Cubans, former military officers say, Maduro created new command centers nationwide. He appointed senior officers to run new commands in each of the 23 states and Caracas, the capital, as well as eight regional commands above those. His public speeches are now increasingly peppered with terms like ZODI and RIDI, acronyms for the new commands. Near military facilities, new brass abounded. Before, seeing a general was like seeing a bishop or an archbishop. He was an important figure, recalls Morph, the retired major. Not long ago, I saw one in an airport. He walked past a group of soldiers and they didn't even salute. Flag officers now oversee some areas that were once slivers of larger commands, in areas so remote that they have few human inhabitants. The largest landmass in the Western Maritime and Insular Command, overseen by an admiral, is a rocky archipelago with little vegetation and no permanent residence. The officer, Vice Admiral Rodolfo Sanchez, 
didn't respond to a Reuters phone call to his office. The lopsided, partisan structure has led to mission creep, former officers say. In the Andes Command, which oversees three states, six generals once oversaw roughly 13,000 troops, according to officers familiar with the region. Today, at least 20 generals are now managing ranks that have dwindled to as few as 3,000 soldiers, according to officers familiar with the region. Last August, three of the generals, including the regional commander, met with municipal officials in the state of Takaira, a hotbed of protests against Maduro in recent years. Days earlier, the government had said explosives used in a drone attack on a military parade in Caracas had been smuggled through Takaira from Colombia. All of us together can solve this problem, Major General Manuel Bernal told the assembled officers and a group of onlookers, including a Reuters reporter. Bernal wasn't talking about the drones, however. Or even national security, once a major issue in the Andean region, where Colombia's guerrilla war long posed a threat. Instead, the generals had gathered to talk about trash overflowing at a landfill. They deployed soldiers to clear garbage and put out a fire there. A communications official for the Andes Command didn't respond to a Reuters request to speak with Bernal about the episode. Military bosses show few signs of shying away from such directives. In the weeks since Guaido's failed call to arms, senior officers have reiterated their commitment to Maduro. We will continue fulfilling our constitutional duties, fulfilling duties under your command, Defense Minister Padrino told Maduro alongside troops gathered in Caracas in early May. Loyal always! Padrino shouted. The troops responded in unison, traitors never. How Now you can see how complex is the situation with the military in Venezuela. By one hand, you have uh, an armed force that is uh, dominated by Cuba, by the, uh, Cuban officers. On the other hand, you have uh, a very dispersed force that is not operative. So we have to discard the use of the armed force in Venezuela to create a, a coup d'etat. It might be some uh, uh, military with some guns that in some way would um, uh, create a sort kind of attempt to oust that Maduro. But if the people of Venezuela would not... Uh, act in the streets it, it won't happen because the um, armed forms 
basically are dismantled. So that is the situation in Venezuela right now. Um, Maduro had a lot of power in his hands, uh, helped uh, by the Cubans and the intelligence uh, system of a communist country. And in order to oust him, would be we have to create the um, conditions to do so. The first one is the political conditions, and um, we don't have that. You don't you don't ousted um, communism with socialism. It's impossible. Uh, the actual uh, leadership is not a real opposition in Venezuela. They are socialists. The, the idea is my socialist um, uh, theme is better than yours. You are not a real socialist. And in that, in that discussion, you have nothing. Uh, by the other hand, the uh, Venezuelan government do whatever they please with the opposition or with the dissonance. You can see it right now on what happened with Mr. Saab. They suspend the, the talks with the Juan Guaido's um, representatives because the U.S. government uh, had uh, Alex Saab in their power. So, you know, it's, it's something very logical and very unlogical at the same time uh, because the dissidents even though they are sort kind of allies of the um, United States government, uh, in reality they don't have that kind of power to tell the U.S. government what to do or what not to do. Even the administration does not have that kind of power because this is strictly a matter of justice and in the Republic of the United States of America we have divided the power by three branches and the executive branch has nothing to do with the judicial one so the things that does not happen in the um, communist regimes where the government has the power in as a unison. You know, it's, it's one power and they do what they please. In the United States, the systems is um, check and balances. That is uh, why 
this is the longest republic in the history on, of contemporary world. Well, my friend, it's almost the time to say goodbye. David, the legend, uh, next week is Memorial Day, and uh, I would like the last... Not Memorial Day. Um, vet- Veterans, Veterans Day. Veterans Day. There is a big difference. Yes, yeah. a lot. Uh, please, I want some some reflection on that important day that is in November 11. Okay. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.